0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can all make sure that we are Prepare to study the word that we're in right relationship with god and that we are walking by the spirit it is god the holy spirit who is the power in the christian life uh, it is god the holy spirit who works in us to produce that which has eternal value so let's bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come before Your throne of grace and to recognize that we have access to you through the death of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin, that we come not on the basis of anything that we have done or who we are, but solely on the basis of who he is and what he did on the cross. Father, we pray that as we reflect tonight upon your word and as we study, that we will be reminded of your grace and that no matter what problems we face, no matter what difficulties or challenges there are in life, whether they are assaults from the outside or problems that we have or difficulties we have just in terms of controlling or dealing with our own emotions, that we are uh, we we understand from your word that your grace is sufficient for us and no matter what the challenge is, ultimately the solution is your word. And we pray that we might come to understand that tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're actually going to go verse by verse in 1 Samuel 1 tonight. After seven weeks of introduction, we will actually get started a little bit tonight. The focus in this chapter is really on grace, otherwise known as Hannah. Because Hannah is from the root word in Hebrew meaning grace, and so, as God is preparing to bring this massive change into Israel, resolving the problems that face the nation because they 're a dead end they 've rejected god they 've rejected his solutions after the last uh, uh, <clears throat> the rise of the last enemy, the Philistines, and their oppression. Uh, in the various cycles that are, we covered in the in the book of Judges, they don't even turn back to God anymore. They don't cry for deliverance. They are just falling apart internally, not unlike a number of uh, familiar nations that we are. Uh, that we know through history. So the emphasis in this chapter is going to be on grace, God's grace in providing that which is necessary to bring about real change to Israel. They don't deserve it. They don't. Uh, they haven't earned it. They don't, they're not even looking for it. And yet God is going to uh, intervene in history to provide what they need. It doesn't happen overnight. It didn't change overnight for Israel. It's not going to change overnight for us. When we're in a position where we need to go through a transformation due to failure, the solution is always the grace of God and the Word of God, but it never happens quickly. It takes time to grow spiritually. That's how God works in our lives. Last time, we focused on the fact that this is a story of hope, looking at Lamentations 3, uh, 21 through 24. A lament is the expression of sorrow and grief written in uh, poetic form. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah as he thought and he grieved profoundly over the loss of Jerusalem after the destruction of Jerusalem. There is a problem due to a lot of superficiality in in Christianity. We look at the scriptures and the scriptures teach us that we have hope that we have peace, that we have joy in Christ, and we have all of those things. But so often what has happened in a sort of an oversimplification is people think it's one or the other, when what we'll see tonight is a lot of times when we're walking with the Lord, there is difficulty, there's adversity, and there can be sorrow and heartache even in the midst of joy and the stability that we have uh, that comes from the Lord, and we have to understand that problem that a lot of people have is when they go through difficulty and they have gone through situations and they are grieving in their soul like Hannah does in this chapter. They're grieving in their soul and Christians say, well, you're just not trusting God. Is that really a biblical answer? I don't think so. And we'll see that tonight as we go through this. What we recognize is that there is sorrow. This is what, uh, what uh jeremiah talks about is he recalled what had happened to jerusalem and he recalls the 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 sorrow of soul that's the previous verse in Lamentations 320 and he says this i recall to mind therefore i have hope through the lord's mercies we're not consumed because his compassions fail not that's the sufficiency of grace they're new every morning great is your faithfulness The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. And we looked at this principle that history is his story, the outworking of God's plan, and God's plan includes adversity as well as prosperity, blessing as well as difficulty. Now, when we come to chapter 1, of 1 Samuel, I want to give us an overview, just to understand the story, the characters, the things that are happening here, and the first seven chapters of first Samuel, as i've emphasized before, serves as an introduction to the rest of the book and by the book, i don't mean just first Samuel first and second Samuel were originally written as one uh, one document as one book, and it was split because it didn't fit on one scroll, so it eventually be known, became known as Samuel Part One and Samuel Part Two are first and Second Samuel, and in these initial chapters, we set the introduction to what comes. It begins with this miraculous birth of, of Samuel, and it ends when the when Israel rejects samuel 's leadership, the leadership of his sons, and demand a king from God, like all of the other nations. This sets the stage for the shift to the monarchy. The first king will be Saul, the second king will be David, and the life of Saul covers the rest of 1 Samuel. And even though we're introduced to David in 1 Samuel 17, uh, David doesn't become king until the beginning of of 2 Samuel. And in these chapters, in 1 Samuel 1 through 7, we see God intervene in human history in order to bring judgment upon the priesthood in Israel, specifically the family, the dynasty of the high priest Eli and his sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. And God is also going to work to raise up a new prophet, a voice of integrity who will represent God and proclaim his truth to the uh, people of Israel, and it 's through this new word through through Samuel that God is going to reverse the tide of the declining fortunes of Israel and will restore them and fittingly, the story begins with an obscure rural woman who is under persecution from a second wife in her own house, not unlike Israel, who is under persecution from the Philistines in the land that God has has given them. And God is going to intervene graciously in her life. Her name, Hannah, means uh, a gracious woman. And so this story emphasizes the grace of God. It opens up with a story of domestic conflict. We see a man, Elkanah, of whom nothing negative is said, uh, who has two wives. The first wife was Hannah. The second wife is Penina. And when we look at the home life, it's not a happy home. There are very few homes that would be happy when you have one man and two women, and one woman is constantly irritating and seeking to push all the buttons she can of the other woman, making it appear that that she's the one who has all the favor and grace from God, even though the other woman is the one who is named Grace, and the whole issue here is that Hannah is without child; she has been incapable of bearing bearing a child, and so because of that, her husband, in order to preserve the family name and to preserve the family inheritance, went out as was the custom sometimes, and uh, married another woman. We don't know how long Hannah and Elkanah have been married. But if we think about it a little bit, it's been some time, long enough for them to realize that Hannah is barren, that she's not going to have any children, long enough for him to find a second wife and marry her, and for her to get pregnant at least twice, maybe more, because she has had children. So, anywhere from 10 to 20 years has gone by. Uh, it can't be too long because then Hannah would be uh, outside of childbearing age. But there's enough time that has gone by to where Hannah has year after year gone through this anguish and this torment from Penina. Her life has been made miserable by the second wife. Now, because when they're listed, uh, their names are listed in verse 2. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. It seems that Hannah is the first, Penina is the second. And so Hannah goes through this again and again. Not only does she not have the ability to fulfill herself within Jewish culture, the highest hope of a Jewish wife was that she would be the one who would bear the seed, the promised seed, going back to Genesis 2.15, the seed of the woman. And so the, within the home, the, the wife, the mother, would find her ultimate fulfillment in that role of being a wife and mother. And yet this is close to her. Her heart is breaking. I've pointed this out the last three times. the The language that is used here, her heart is grieved in verse 8. Uh, she's in bitterness of soul in verse 10. She's in anguish in verse 10. And and so she expresses this. She weeps uh, before the Lord. So this has gone on year after year. And what would the response be in our culture? If you're that depressed, then you need to be medicated. I'll address that a little later on. That is our go-to response is if you're down and you're depressed and you're discouraged over a period of time, then you must have something wrong it must be some sort of spiritual malfunction now we're told something else about this family that they're unlike most of the families in Israel at the time remember this is a time when Israel is in moral spiritual and spiritual relativism there's no king in the land everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes everyone is pursuing their own agenda uh, and and the whole fabric of the culture is just coming uh, coming unraveled, but here we have a picture of Elkanah. We will come to learn from other uh, literature from First Chronicles chapter six that he is a descendant of Aaron. He is a Levitical priest. He's living in Ephraim, so he's considered an Ephraimite, but he is a Levitical priest, and he's very devout. Every year, and we don't know that because there were six or three different annual feasts. Uh, three in, there were three feasts in the fall, three feasts in, in the spring in the Jewish calendar, and three times a year, all the males were required to go up to the central sanctuary to worship. So we see differences. There's been a breakdown in the understanding and application of the law in Israel, and they're only going up to the uh, tabernacle once a year. But most Israelites weren't going at all because they had rejected God, and they were all into uh, paganism and the fertility religions of the Canaanites surrounding them, and here we have a man who is focused on his family. He is uh, taking them annually to have a great feast and celebration, we're not told which one it was, at the tabernacle, which was about maybe 20 miles from their home, and this was a very important time. He would take, uh, animals for sacrifices and after these peace offerings were offered to God, then they would sit around and enjoy the banquet and the feast. And as the years went by and Penina made it more and more painful for Hannah, it came to this particular time when she's been so tormented by the insult, she just breaks down weeping. She can't even eat. And as soon as everybody else is, is done, showing that she has some measure of poise and composure still, then she flees the scene and she goes to the entry to the tabernacle and she prostrates herself before uh, before God, calling upon him to be the one to solve her problem. And that is a critical thing to for us to understand. Elkanah is pictured as a man who's devout, as a man who's focused on spiritual things, as a man who loves his wife Hannah uh, deeply, and he seeks to do everything he can to ease her way, but he is incapable of resolving the sorrow in her soul. There's a principle there for every husband that ultimately whatever may be going on in in the uh, life of your spouse You can't be the ultimate solution. It works the other way too, wives. You can't be the ultimate solution if there's something going on in the soul of your husband. You can pray for them, but ultimately the resolution is between them and the Lord and they have to deal with it under uh, biblical principles. So uh, Elkanah loves Hannah, takes her to the annual feast. She prostrates herself before God at the uh, at the tabernacle and that's when we're introduced to Eli's name's been mentioned already back in verse uh, back in verse uh, 2 or 3 rather and he he's so spiritually dense that when he sees her praying out to God and her lips moving he thinks she's drunk he has no spiritual discernment or sensitivity And remember, he's described as a corrupt, uh, apostate, and obese high priest. He is a picture of the spiritual density of the people of Israel at this particular time. While she pleads pleads with God, she makes a vow to God that if God would grant her requests to give her a son uh, like he had to... to Sarah and uh, Rebekah and Rachel, the matriarchs of Israel, then she would give that son back to the Lord in service, that he would serve the Lord all the days of his life as a Nazarite. So she's going to impose this vow upon her son. And it was then that Eli rudely interrupts her. Uh, He's completely misunderstood the situation, accuses her of being drunk and proceeds to run her off from the tabernacle. She refused. She is a woman of integrity. She refuses to yield her ground, and she rebukes him. She defends her honor and her virtue, explains her purpose there, which chastens Eli somewhat. We're not told a lot of details, but he responds by telling her to go in peace, that God would grant her petition. Now, as the high priest, apparently he is given some sort of revelation at that point to where he knows that this is true and communicates that uh, to her. Now, we're told as she leaves and goes <clears throat> goes back to the family that they worship the next morning uh, at the tabernacle, and then they left to go back home. And in due course, we're told that God answered her prayer that she conceived and then gave birth to a son, naming him Shmuel which is a play on words. We'll get into that as we go forward. It's a name that means uh, that God has has heard. But that's not exactly what it means. It sort of sounds that way. That's why it's a pun. Its pronunciation, though, sounds like the word in Hebrew for asking. There's only one letter difference between Shmuel and Saul, and that's the M that's in the middle. And so this is an interesting little foreshadowing as uh, uh, Hannah has asked for a son. Uh, She names him Shmuel because it sounds like the name for asking that she has requested this from God, and God has heard her and granted her request and then uh, she keeps the child at home. The next year comes around. Alcana is going to take the family up to worship at the temple again, and she doesn't want to go, refuses to go until she's weaned the child. She exhibits wisdom in that because she wants to influence this child as long as she can before she turns uh, the young boy over to uh, over to Eli, and this is going to take time. Now, uh, there's a lot of debate and discussion to exactly how long, uh, women at that time would, um, would keep an infant and, and, and until they were weaned. Sometimes, usually it was around three years. It could go, I've read as great as, as five years. But she kept him this way long enough so that she could have as much influence on him as possible, training him and preparing him for service in the, uh, in the tabernacle and the influence, the negative influence of Eli, uh, and his sons. So during those years, she nourishes him, nourishes him both physically and spiritually, and then she takes him to Shiloh, offers a bull for sacrifice. Now your text probably reads three bulls, but there's some, uh, issue with how you understand the text it's probably the best reading is a bull of 3 years of age uh, rather than 3 a 3-year-old bull rather than 3 bulls and there they sacrificed hannah fulfilled her vow to the lord and they worshiped the lord there now that's the over that's the overview and when we get to this Uh, final statement. She says in verse 28, therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. That's the end of the narrative. Then in chapter two, Hannah prays, and we'll get into that uh, eventually. But the prayer is the expression of her praise and joy because God has answered her prayer. Now, as we get into uh, the opening part here, we're in the first division, where God is preparing to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace. Grace is the focal point in this particular section. In this first section, verses 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to two eleven, 11, the Lord graciously prepares Israel for deliverance through the birth of a son. This is a pattern we see from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and 16, what is the promise that God makes to Eve? That it is through the seed of the woman that God will defeat the seed of the serpent. And then we come to chapter 4 verse 1 and Eve gives birth to her first son and she names him Cain from a Hebrew word meaning gotten from God. She thinks that that Son was the answer to that promise, and it wasn't because there's going to be more and more generations that will come down the line, but that's the first hint of a promised son that's fulfilled then of course, we have the story of of Abraham, and God promised that uh, his wife Sarah he and his wife Sarah would give birth to a son. And, of course, this didn't happen right away. It takes time in God's plan. Everybody in our culture is in such a hurry. We go to McDonald's or you go to Burger King or you go uh, to the grocery store and you get your meal that you can cook in 10 minutes or 15 minutes and you're done, and you want everything to happen right now. But in the spiritual life, things take time. In the plan of God, things take time. We have to wait on the Lord, and we have to develop spiritually. You can't hurry up. Uh, spiritual growth Uh, some of you are gardeners right now is a time here in texas when everybody's planting their tomato plants and their onions and their peppers and squash and okra and everything for the summer and no matter what you do it's going to take that tomato plant somewhere between 80 and 100 days before it's going to have ripe fruit you can fertilize it you can water it you can go out there and do an indian rain dance around it you can do whatever you want to but you can't speed it up And you can't speed up spiritual growth either. And there are things that we all go through in life that seem like they never, ever end. They may go on for months or years or, in some cases, even decades. But that's the tool that God has established for teaching and training training us. And so it takes time. And so God takes this time period from the birth of Samuel until he is probably close to 60 years of age... In preparing Israel for that first king. And the first king isn't the one who's going to be the long term king because we already know from prophecies in Genesis 49 that it is going to, the king, the scepter, is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And this first king, Shaul or Saul, is from what tribe? This no account apostate tribe of the Benjamites that caused so much trouble at the end of the book of Judges. And so we, we know that God is giving them the wrong thing first because they have to learn some lessons, and that often is what happens with us. So we have the preparation in these uh, uh, first uh, uh, seven chapters, and then he prepares through the birth of a son in chapters uh, 1-1 down to 2:11. And what we see in the first 20 verses is that the Lord is going to open, or this should be the first 28 verses, the Lord is going to open Hannah's womb, and then the Lord um, who had closed his, her womb uh, uh, to prepare for the deliverance of Israel uh, through a gracious, miraculous birth. So what we see in the first seven verses is that God is the one who closed her womb for a purpose, And this is another principle we often see in Scripture, is that God takes us through adversity because he has a greater plan at the end. And we don't see that. We have to learn to trust him and to wait upon him uh, and get through that adversity before we ever see what the end result will be. So let's look at our first couple of verses where we're introduced to the main characters in this whole episode. Five of the six significant characters in our story in the first seven chapters are introduced in the first three verses of 1 Samuel. We read, Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Then verse 3 says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. First time we see that title in the, in the scripture, to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, The priests of the Lord were there. So in these verses, we're introduced to Elkanah. We're introduced to his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. We're introduced to the high priest, Eli, and his two sons, Hophni, whose name means tadpole, and Pinchas, or Phinehas, whose name means dark-skinned. I had to check that one out. The first commentary I saw mentioned the name of it said, his name means Negro. I thought, that's not going to preach real well. Let me look it up in the dictionary. Dark skinned. And then lastly, at the end of the chapter, we're introduced to Shmuel. He just had a dark tan. He was not a Negro. You know, I don't know why Hollywood does this. The Jews are Jews. They're not Western Europeans. They're not Italians. They're not Renaissance Italians. I watched this show that was generally was pretty good the other night, A.D., the the, the, the Bible, the, the New Testament. And my wife will tell you I am not the person to watch any kind of biblical TV or or. Movie or anything with because I am exceptionally critical and I found a, lot, a few th- things to pick at, but generally I was amazed at what a good job they did. Much better than anything else I've ever I, I've ever seen. But I don't understand. We haven't seen James yet, the brother of John, but John is as African, Ethiopian as he can possibly be, and so is Mary Magdalene. Now, James, John's brother James better show up looking like he's a black African because, I mean, things like that just drive me nuts. I, I just, I just can't. But everything else was pretty good. Why they do that, I don't know. They're Jewish. You know, they're not Chinese. They're not Hispanic. They're, 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 they're Jewish. Although we do have a Hispanic Jesus in this. I think he's from Argentina. But he looked Jewish. At least that. Okay. So here we have Elkanah, his, his uh, two wives Eli and his two sons. Now they're from Ramathaim Zophim. Later on in the text, this is referred to as Rama. Ramathaim that Iim ending indicates a du- dual. And in, in Hebrew, you have a singular, you have a dual. That in a dual ending, you would use if you were talking about two dogs. Uh, and for example, uh, you have the, uh, the Nile splits into a couple of rivers. So Egypt is called Mitzrayim. It's as a dual there, dual ending. And then you have just a regular uh, plural ending. So you have um, Ramathaim Zophim here, which is Ramah of the land of Zuf. In other places, it's not an O, it's a U. Remember, in Hebrew, there's not a a vowel uh, listed there, and so the pronunciation of the vowel would shift. In 1 Samuel 9.5, Saul, you know, that's the story when Saul loses his asses, and he can't find them, and while he's looking for them, he goes to the territory of Zuth, which is near Ramah. The territory of... Zuth was the ancestor who took this territory at the time of the conquest. And so uh, this is what Ramathim Zophie means. Here's a map. And here we have uh, the location of Jerusalem right here. Here's the Dead Sea. Uh, this is the Jordan River coming down from the Sea of Galilee. This is where the Israelites crossed right here, just uh, east of Jericho, Gilgal, where they uh, offered uh, sacrifice, built an altar. Here's Jerusalem, Bethlehem, a little bit to the south. Those of you who've been there know how close things are. That gives you a perspective. Jerusalem is about maybe eight or nine miles from uh, Bethlehem, or less than that, probably about six miles from Bethlehem. And Ramah here, notice it's just a little further than Bethlehem, so it's about eight miles away. They've located it here. And this is up in the hill country. You can see on this topographical map here the hills. The hill country of Ephraim, which is uh, which is Samaria. Now the term Ramathaim means two heights, and there's a lot of discussion as to what that means. What it probably refers to is the the town, the the village was on one hill, and on the next hill they would have had a, a their sacrificial site. So that's probably why it refers to the two heights. There's also a lot of discussion as to where this is located exactly. Uh, there's one site, Ram Allah, which is located... Did you hear that? Ram... The old name was Ram Allah, several facets, Ramallah, uh, which is nine miles north of Jerusalem. You know, Ramallah, which is a Palestinian town. Uh, Er-Ram, which is five miles north of Jerusalem, which is the locations located here... Uh, nevi samuel i don 't know if any of you saw the big statue they have a Samuel uh, on the horizon from Jerusalem, which is allegedly it might be the location of his grave it 's right there that's that's uh, one possibility and then recently, there have been a number of people who have equated it with arimathea Joseph of Arimathea the Rm there represents that root Rama, so it's some of several of these are very close in this general uh, general vicinity. Elkanah is the first uh, character that we meet; he's the head of the family, and according to First Chronicles six twenty-two to twenty-eight, and then later in verses thirty-three to thirty-eight, Samuel is born into the family line of Kohath in the tribe of Levi. So here we have uh, 1 Chronicles 6.22. I misspoke earlier. I think I said he's a descendant of Aaron. He's a descendant of Kohath and a descendant of Levi. Uh, the sons of Kohath, this gives the list. Then in 6.23, you have uh, one of the grandsons of Kohath was also named Elkanah. This is not the Elkanah of uh, not Samuel's father. This is an, an ancestor. As for Elkanah, the sons of Elkanah were Zophi and his son Nahath. And then in verse 27, Eliab, his son. That'd be Nahath, then Eliab, then Jehoram, or Jeroham, his son. And then Elkanah, his son. The next verse begins with Samuel. I didn't have room to put all of that on there. So this is the line. So you have Elkanah, Jeroham is mentioned in both places. Elihu is probably another form of the name Eliav. Uh, Tohu, it may be a variant of Nahath or it could be referring to someone else in the line. Zuth is a, another form of the name Zophi. So that shows us that, uh, Elkanah was a, it was in the Levitical line and was a Levitical priest. I had no idea how this would show up, so I thought I would give it a little experiment. This is a chart they have in Logos Bible software. Down here we have Samuel, who is the son of Elkanah and Hannah, and then it traces the lineage back, Jeroham, Eliab, Tohu, Zuth, uh, back to uh, an Ephraite. Now, after the conquest, we're told that a number of Levites settled in Ephraim, in the territory of Ephraim. And so they would be called Ephraimites because of where they lived, even though they were Levites in terms of their lineage. So we're told that Elkanah had two wives. Now, for a lot of people, this would not be something that they would understand because we look at the Bible through the lens of the New Testament, which prohibits uh, bigamy and prohibits uh, uh, polygamy. But in the ancient world, uh, sometimes it was necessary for a man in order to preserve his inheritance, to preserve the family name, that if he is married to one wife and she is unable to conceive and have children, then he would take a concubine or a second wife who could uh, bear children so that the name could go on. This is not off, uh, not condemned or commended in Scripture. Every now and then I run into somebody who tries to make a case that the, the Old Testament doesn't condemn polygamy, so it's okay. No, the Old Testament doesn't specifically address it, but every picture that we have... Of either two wives, as in this case, or more wives, polygamy in the case of some of the kings, there's always a problem. The household is never at peace where there's more than one wife under the roof. So the biblical idea from the beginning is one woman and one man. Not two men, not two women, not one man, not, and multiple women, or one man and children and you can figure out where the rest of the perversions go in the illustrations I'm using because once you start changing the definition of marriage in a culture then why stop at at two men or two women why not a man and multiple boys or a woman and multiple girls or get into bestiality or whatever it is once you the culture starts Making up its own rules as to what marriage is, there's nothing to stop it. It changes everything and redefines everything and leads to the total collapse uh, collapse of the culture. So we're presented here with Elkanah, who has two wives, Hannah and Penina, and the only place that you have a strict prohibition of polygamy in the Old Testament in the laws in Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17, where it's prohibited of a king. Uh, of course, David didn't take David long before he violated that commandment. So in the ancient world, what's important here for us to understand is in the ancient world, there was tremendous emphasis on women to have a male child. Within Israel, this, of course, went back to the Messianic prophecies and the Messianic uh, 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 promises. And that they would maintain the lineage of the family as the inheritance, the family inheritance in the land that God had given them. Remember, it was not to be transferred outside of the clan. So they were to protect that. And the way that was protected was through uh, giving birth to a male child. So when when a woman could not fulfill that as part of her uh, mission, of her role, then this was a a serious source of depression and discouragement for that woman, that she was um, she was a source of failure within the family. She was unable to fulfill her mission. Now, there's another element to this, which I'll point out a little later, and that is that there is a promise of God that if Israel is obedient, God will make them fruitful and they will multiply. But if the nation is not, uh, not obedient, then God is going to bring judgment upon them and part of that judgment would include uh, barren women they would not be able to give birth so this is also a sign of spiritual failure so when we look at Penina and we look at Hannah we see that these two women also give us a bit of a picture of the conflict between the Philistines and and Israel that Hannah represents Israel, who's spiritually barren at this time, spiritually nonproductive, and being ridiculed and oppressed by the Philistines, just as Hannah is being ridiculed and oppressed by Penina. Penina, who is almost the illegitimate type wife, the second wife, is the one who is experiencing blessing and productivity, even though she is not the one who technically should receive that as the Philistines are experiencing, uh, success and military victory and prosperity, uh, in everything that they are doing at this particular time. So it's sort of a picture in miniature of what's going on in the nation. And what we'll see is that just as God solves Hannah's problem in the, in the miniature, it is that solution, Samuel, her son, who's going to provide the the spiritual solution to the problem for for uh, Israel. Now, as we look at this, we see the second person who is Penina. Now, Penina's name means pearl. So we have Gracie and Pearly here, and Pearly is Hannah's rival. And the Hebrew word that translates that is the word Sarah, which means in. In one meaning, it has the idea of a concubine or a second wife. What's interesting is the word took on a second meaning. So if you look this one word up in the dictionary, it lists two meanings. The first is a concubine or second wife. You'll never guess what the second one is. An enemy. Doesn't that make sense? For those of you who like etymologies, that makes wonderful sense. Uh, So she is said to be Hannah's rival. Little is said about her other than she makes Hannah's life absolutely miserable. She's apparently the second wife, and she has been quite fertile. She has been quite productive, and she has had children. We don't know if that's three or more, but the duel is not used, so it's probably at least three children, and she takes advantage of every opportunity that she can in order to uh, make Hannah's life miserable and to let her know That she is pretty worthless as a woman, and this went on for years. So Hannah is very much discouraged. Now we see an example of how Elkanah loves Hannah in verse five. That every year when they would, uh, when he would make an offering, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. That tells us that there's at least uh, probably at least three three, probably quite a few more. But Hannah, he would give a double portion. Now, there's a lot of debate over this, and I'm not sure I've got the, the skill to analyze this when you realize this. Literally in the Hebrew, it says that he gave Hannah a double nose. And there's a lot of discussion as to what that means. Some people think it means a double portion Other people means say that it just means that he gave her the best of the offering. In either case, he is giving Hannah preference because of his love for her, because of his care for her. And we're told also at this point that the reason for this is that the Lord had closed her womb. There is a direct statement here that the reason she is barren is because of God's will. God is at work. He's doing something. This isn't just something that happens, but there is a spiritual significance behind this. And you can't extrapolate that to any family, couple, woman who is having difficulty conceiving. There are, as we'll see in a minute when I get into the doctrine of the barren woman... There are six women whose uh, barrenness is made an issue out of in Scripture, but there were many others who were barren who could not have children. They weren't the only ones. Uh, God is making a point with them, though, and when we read here that the Lord had closed her womb, if you are a knowledgeable Jew, a knowledgeable Israelite, and you're reading the Scripture, what's going to come into your mind? There's a a literary reminder here that you ought to think immediately, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, not in that order, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. These were the three matriarchs, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and Rachel, the wife of, of Jacob. And they each were barren until God intervened. emphasizes the miraculous nature of the birth of Israel. And when God intervened in the lives of the the barren matriarchs and brought about uh, the conception of a male child, that was significant because it led to a transformation in the history of God's chosen people. And so as you read this story and you're sitting down and you're reading and you read that Hannah is barren, your mind is immediately going to uh, Sarah, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and then as you read that she gives birth to a son, you think this is what is going to transform the nation, so it's foreshadowing. Now in verse 6 we read, her rival or her enemy, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So a second time, the author makes it clear to us that this is the Lord's doing. This isn't just something that happens, but this is under the providential direction of God that she has been unable to have a child so that God could move in a unique way in providing this deliverance for Israel. Now, the word here that's translated uh, provoke and also to irritate is from the root uh, root word karas. In one place you have a verb, in another place it's, it's a noun, but it's used to emphasize the, this, this, the reality of her emotional state. The root meaning of ka'as is to be vexed or to be uh, indignant or angry or grieved or provoked to anger. She is in emotional distress. Now, how long does this go on? Look at verse 7. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord. This is a constant problem in her life. There are a lot of folks who have problems with depression, with discouragement, with difficulties in life, and it seems like they just go on and on and God never hears. Well, you're not the first. Hannah went through this same thing. God takes us through these kinds of situations to teach us to focus on him. And what we see in Hannah's spiritual life is that she has a tenacious faith. She is not going to be uh, like, like others in her culture and turn to the fertility gods and goddesses to solve her problem. She keeps focused on the fact that it will be God and God alone, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will solve her problem. Now, as we look at this t- and think about it a little more, there's another interesting word that shows up in here, and that's a Hebrew word, ra'am, which means that has the idea that she is is brought low. She is just uh, uh, treated in in such an oppressive manner. What's interesting is that word is a, kind of a homophone and shows up uh, that, that the word has two meanings. It's two different words, actually. They're spelled the same with two different meanings, and it shows up as thunder in 1 Samuel chapter 2.10, where it talks about the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven, he will thunder against them. And so there's a play on words between this verse and 1 Samuel 2.10, emphasizing the fact that it is the thunder of God that destroys his enemies that will vanquish her oppression and, and her uh, anger. That's first, first uh Samuel 2.10. But another thing we need to recognize as we look at uh, this kind of a situation is that this kind of discouragement is not unusual in the Scriptures. And we'll look at that as we look at Hannah. So we've looked at Elkanah, we've looked at Penina, and now we're going to look at Hannah a little bit. Hannah's pictured as a devout woman. She's focused on the Lord. She is spiritually astute, even though she is not schooled or trained in the scriptures. She is focused, though, upon the Lord and that he's the one and the only one who can solve her problems. Notice these things about Hannah. Hannah goes up to the tabernacle to seek a solution to the problem. There's not another woman mentioned in the Old Testament that goes up to the tabernacle or the temple for any reason. She's the only one mentioned who does so in in the Old Testament. Hannah's also the only woman shown in the scripture who made and fulfilled a vow to the Lord. So again, she stands out in terms of her spiritual relationship to the Lord. She's the only woman in the Old Testament who is specifically said to pray. Palal is a Hebrew verb. She's the only one who's specifically said to pray. Others worship the Lord or they praise the Lord, but she's the only one who is specifically said to pray to the Lord. And her prayer includes the most recorded utterances of the name of Yahweh uh, by a woman. Eighteen times in, in the next chapter, she mentions the name of God. This is, this is more than any other woman in the Old Testament. She's also shown avoiding the human viewpoint solutions of the fertility gods and goddesses. She's not going to try to find a concubine to solve her problem like Sarah did. Uh, She looks to the Lord and the Lord alone for the solution to her problem. She avoids a trap of Jep, that Jephthah made by not making a rash vow as he did. Remember his vow that whatever comes out of the door of the house to greet him, when he comes home, he's going to offer that as a burnt offering. She uh, offers her son instead as a living sacrifice that he will serve the Lord all of his days. So she is tenacious in her focus on the Lord. She's thought this out. She makes this vow It is not a rash vow, but it is expressed in the pits of her emotional distress. We learn that in those situations that we all go through, that we pour our hearts out to the Lord. Just read the Psalms sometime. How many times David is lamenting his circumstances, his situation. He talks about how it's affecting him physically, how his bones ache, his joints ache, his muscles ache. How he is oppressed by his enemies, and he is so distressed and crying out to the Lord, and he sees no hope whatsoever and often in our superficiality, we think that when somebody's going through that that they're they they must be out of fellowship look they they're they're crying, they're weeping, they're all distressed over circumstances of their life. Why don't you just straighten up, trust the Lord, just keep moving well. That's not how the Bible handles it. The Bible recognizes that there are legitimate reasons. There are a lot of illegitimate reasons as well. But there are legitimate reasons for sorrow and discouragement and even despair. And God uses that to turn us toward him. Now, sometimes sorrow, discouragement, despair are the result of having dashed hopes and destroyed dreams because we're focusing on the wrong thing. And that happens with a lot of people. They want certain things in life and then when they don't get it, they are distraught and they are depressed and they are discouraged. We have one example of that in the New Testament when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to know he's been obedient. How can I know that I will inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you need to, he says, I've, I've, kept all the commandments. And then Jesus said, well, you need to go sell all that you have, and then you'll have eternal life. And the, res- the result is he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now he's, got, he, he's sorrowful and depressed and discouraged for the wrong reasons. He wants the wrong thing. He's putting his hope in finances, his hope in his treasures. And Jesus is saying, you can't hold on to that and and really have hope. And so he goes away discouraged and he's grieving. In this case, the cause is sin because he's got his focus in the wrong direction. But then we have this same word lupeo used plus another word in Matthew twenty six thirty seven. This is a scene where Jesus is going apart from the rest of his disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes uh, Peter and uh, James and John with him, and the text says he began to be sorrowful, that's the verb lupeo, and deeply distressed. And this word means that he is just overwhelmed, and uh, he, he, the pressure from the circumstances are so great that he begins to just sweat blood. Jesus is going through emotional distress. He is sorrowful. He's going to go to the cross the next day. If he, I would bet that for most of us, if we were to sit down with somebody who was a Christian and they were that emotionally distressed, we would say, what? You just got to claim a few promises, buddy. You know, get right with the Lord. Confess your sins. Rebound. Move forward. You know, get going. That's what you need to do. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who's sinless. These emotions are legitimate. What makes it illegitimate is what you do with them. Now, that is a tough thing for a lot of people to think through. But we, too often what we do when we're talking to somebody, we have a friend or family member, sometimes they're distressed for the wrong reasons and they are out of fellowship. Other times they're distressed because they've got the focus all wrong. I mean, because the focus is right, just, the Lord is taking through through difficult circumstances, and guess what? The whole creation groans. Look at Romans eight twenty. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, everything in creation is under the curse, not because it, it voted for it. It didn't make a volitional choice to be under the curse. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now, I would bet that if I asked for a show of hands, everybody's hand would go up. That sometimes it's just pretty miserable living in this world. That's why it's called a veil of tears. It can be pretty horrible dealing with a bunch of rotten sinners, who are both your next door neighbors, your children, your parents, and your government. Makes life pretty hard. That's what we're dealing with here. Not only that, Paul goes on to say, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan. This is a term for expressing your misery over looking at life, groan within ourselves. We get discouraged. Eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul uses the same term in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4. For in this we groan. Now, Paul's not out of fellowship. Paul's not sinning. He's, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And what he means, in this, in this mortal body, we groan. Life is tough sometimes. Sometimes it's discouraging but that in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong. And, uh, and then he goes on to say, If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So just a couple of things I want to point out that people need to think about when they think about this issue of their own emotions and maybe the struggling with sorrows and failures in life uh, first of all when we hit difficult times we have a choice we can either focus on the sorrow and the failures and the loss or we can focus on god those are the two options you either focus on the circumstances or you focus on god Now, when you're focusing on God, that doesn't mean that the difficulty, the pain, the heartache necessarily goes away. If I walk up to you and kick you in the shins, you can focus on the Lord, but you're going to kind of be limping around a little bit, and that calf's going to, or that shin's going to hurt a little bit. And that's going to continue to hurt. If your husband or your wife suddenly drops dead, you don't just suck it up and be stoic and say, well, that was God's will. I don't have these emotions of sorrow and difficulty and heartache. You do. That's part of grieving. Paul didn't say we don't grieve because we're not like those who have no hope. In First Thessalonians 4 he said we grieve. Same word Lupeo, but not like those who have no hope. He doesn't say we don't grieve. He doesn't say we don't have sorrow. We have those uh we have those emotions. What we have to do is let the heartache of those emotions drive us to God and not to a frantic search for happiness that ends up producing self-induced misery. We don't start running, looking for happiness or looking for solace in a bottle or pills or pleasure or whatever it is that floats our boat. We have to start trusting in God. And that's what Hannah does. That's what she's the picture of. She turns and focuses on God. When we say that these we have these emotions and that we trust in God, I'm not saying that that's easy. It takes time to learn to trust in God. And it's like it takes time to learn how to walk. We take that wobbly step and we fall down. We take another wobbly step and we fall down. It takes time to learn how to walk. It's not easy. But we have to keep our eyes focused on the fact that there's a biblical solution There are a lot of non-biblical solutions that end up providing short-term relief. But sometimes those short-term solutions end up creating even worse problems. A couple of things that we ought to think about when we think about especially depression and discouragement. The science on this is far from certain. If you read through the literature, read through the literature that is out there, you can go on the Internet, you can look around, and you can probably find a couple of articles. There was one I was looking at this afternoon from Johns Hopkins. It came out last year that depression is is um, overprescribed and it's um, overdiagnosed. That Americans that go, go to a counselor, a psychiatrist, and the first thing is you're, you're depressed many counselors many psychiatrists think that if you go two weeks more than two weeks after the loss of a friend or a loved one in death then you you're clinically depressed you realize that there are many people when they lose a spouse they may be down and feel lonely and discouraged for years that's not wrong if they're dealing with it biblically Because we've lost someone that is near to us and dear to us, and we don't just act like, well, that really didn't matter. That doesn't mean we don't have joy. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in deep sorrow and profound uh, oppression, and he never loses his joy. See, we want to say you're either joyful and happy or... You're depressed, which has got to be sinful, because if you're a believer, you've got to be joyful. What the Bible depicts is that both are true. Jesus Christ had perfect joy when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was facing the cross, and it wasn't sinful for him to be uh, sorrowful, to be grieving, and to be under that uh, oppression. It's what he did with it that matters. The same thing that that happens with us. Sometimes when we go through these situations, it can be profound and long lasting, but we don't turn inward and just say, woe is me, and throw our own little pity party. That's the wrong way to do it. We claim promises. We keep moving forward. We keep our focus on the Lord. And as time goes by, then the Lord is going to provide the healing for those uh, situations. The quick fix that we often hear today in our society is that we need to go on Uh, Prozac or Zoloft or some other antidepressant. There's a fascinating book that is out of print now that came out in the 90s called A Toxic Psychiatry, written by a New York uh, psychiatrist. And he presented the case that still needs to be debated and investigated that the problem when you're on these antidepressants is it rewires your brain. And after a while, you can't get off of them because of the effect that they've had on your brain. These are the kinds of things that need to be uh, discussed and need to be analyzed. The bottom line from the scripture is that God is always a solution. Now, I'm not making a medical diagnosis here. I'm not a doctor. I am, as they used to call pastors, they, they, they called us a doctor of the soul. And see, these are soul problems for the most part. They're not biochemical problems. Now, there's always this debate in modern literature, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the depression or the chemical change? I think what comes first is the depression. It's the sin nature response. You keep living in carnality, it's going to have an impact on your biochemical makeup. Uh, When you take drugs, in a lot of cases, that's going to change your biochemical structure and make it more difficult. Now, that's dealing with issues related to depression. There are other things, such as um, uh, where I think the jury is out. I, I often consult and have talked with Martin Bobgan, who we had speak here uh, several years ago, and he said the areas of, of schizophrenia and the areas of bipolar that the jury is still out as to whether or not there's a biochemical cause. I mean, a, a root cause, physiological cause. Uh, for these conditions, but other conditions that are often treated as, as uh, that need to be treated medically, need to be treated in terms of, of spiritual truth. We all grieve in sorrow at times. That's not a sin in and of itself. It might be, it might not be, but the issue whenever we have these kinds of emotions is to turn to the Word of God. The Bible is always sufficient, but it's not a magic pill. It's not a placebo and it's not going to solve your problems in five minutes. It may take, it may have taken decades for those problems to develop and it may take decades for those problems to be resolved as you apply the word. It's not a quick fix. The Bible pro- portrays many, numerous spiritual heroes who had problems with uh different things hannah david are two that i've mentioned in this particular area but and as we see with hannah her sorrow her grieving her suffering went on year after year year by year but god and god alone solved the problem and that's the way it is for us it's the lord who solves our problem and we have to learn his grace and we have to cultivate it and we have to know the word And then we will discover that his grace is sufficient. Now, I'll come back next time and get into the uh, doctrine of the barren woman. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about these things. Help us to understand very clearly that that often the distress that we feel in life, while on the one hand it may be caused because of sin or carnality in our own lives, it may also be caused simply because we're living in the devil's world And this is a natural response, but it should drive us not to seek false solutions, but to learn to walk more closely with you, to depend upon you, and to recognize that even as these situations may continue, you give us the strength to go forward and to live in the midst of sorrow, but at the same time experiencing the stability, the peace, the joy that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. Father, we pray that you would encourage us. Give us hope from what we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.